Support for this podcast and the following message come from Allianz Travel Insurance. An unexpected medical emergency can cost you. It can cost you even more when you're traveling abroad. Protect your trip at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Tanya Mosley with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, writer and historian Santi Elijah Holly. He's written a new book about the family of the late rapper Tupac Shakur, titled An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. Tupac's family, including his mother, Afeni, were central members of the Black Panthers and the more radical group, the Black Liberation Army, from the late 60s through their demise in the 80s. Also, we'll hear from Christian Cooper. He became known in 2020 for a scene he captured on video in Central Park while birdwatching. A white woman who refused his request to leash her dog called police falsely claiming a black man was threatening her and her dog. And Ken Tucker will review Janelle Monae's new album. I'm raising the bar, they giving me stars, they think I'm supreme. They say I look better than David Bowie in a Monet's dream. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This month, the late rapper Tupac Shakur would have turned 52 years old. He was killed in 1996 at the age of 25. And over the decades, a flurry of books and documentaries have been created and written about his short life and the way he used rap lyrics to convey messages about the world around him. That's the song Changes by Tupac Shakur. Writer Santi Elijah Holly wanted to delve even deeper into the family behind Tupac and what made him an electrifying presence and the voice of a generation. In his new book, An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created, Holly explores the complex legacy of the Shakur family and the different factions of the black nationalist movement in which they were a part. Holly is a journalist and historian. His essays, reviews, and journalism have appeared in various publications, including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and Vice. He is a recipient of the 2022 National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Award and a 2020 PEN America grant. His first book, Murder Ballots, was published in November of 2020. Santi Elijah Holly, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, this is not a book about Tupac, but he was the spark for you. What got you interested in knowing more about his family? Yeah, he absolutely was the spark. I mean, I, I'm i an old Tupac fan from the 90s and you know, when I listened to him back then, uh, I don't think I really listened that deeply to his lyrics. I just was more about the energy and 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 just the the, the raw talents he had. But in later years, as I got older and I sort of formed a career that was uh, writing about the intersection of social justice issues and racial justice issues and art, um, I began looking more closely at Tupac's lyrics, and I realized how how prophetic he was, how prescient he was, and how intelligent he was um, and the things that he was talking about. He's addressing uh, police brutality, income inequality, and I, I was just blown away. So I wanted to know more about why he was so intelligent, how he learned all these things. And I looked more at his his upbringing, his childhood, and his mother, especially Afeni Shakur, former Black Panther. And uh, as I learned more about her, I realized that there was more stories to be told. And, and I learned more about uh, Tupac's stepfather, Matulu, and his work um, you know, back in the 70s and everybody else. And I just learned this rich history that I felt like hadn't been told completely. And so for me, I just felt like I wanted to learn more for myself about this family, this remarkable family and their history. 
but I wasn't, I was coming up against a lot of brick walls or a lot of misinformation. And so I just sort of took it upon myself to say, I'm going to be the one that I think, you know, really needs to tell this story because I feel like there's a lot of people like myself that want to know this history too and can benefit from this history. The Shakur surname came from a follower and associate of Malcolm X, James Costin Sr., who changed his name to Saladin Shakur after Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. Can you briefly tell us about him? Yeah, he was a uh, he was an associate of Malcolm X. Um, he converted to uh, to to Islam to Sunni Islam and wanted to carry on the work that Malcolm X had begun, especially after Malcolm X was assassinated in, in '65. And so Saladin Shakur, by taking the name and by converting, and also he was a Pan African leader and he was just a mentor to young people, and people looked to him to sort of carry on that work. And there's a lot of people who are still trying to carry on the work and sort of and, and honor the legacy of Malcolm X. And Saladin Shakur, by virtue of being older and being an associate of Malcolm, uh, young people looked up to him and, and, and as a father figure. And so people did take the name Shakur from themselves in sort of honor of Saladin Shakur because they wanted to say, you know, we're with you on this ride and we want to learn about Islam. We want to learn about black nationalism. And that was what the name sort of represented for, for this younger generation, but beginning with Saladin, obviously. This new beginning of a movement, when Malcolm X was assassinated, the Black Panther Party stepped in to fill that void. Um, But everyone, as you mentioned, who took the surname Shakur was not related. How did people actually become a part of the family? The Shakur family, as we uh, think about families, it's not a traditional family of like blood relatives or, or by birth. It's by honoring the commitment, taking the name Shakur, you were saying, I'm committing myself to the movement and to the movement for, for the freedom of black people in America. And you didn't take the name lightly. When people took the name Shakur, um, it was stating a very clear, very intentional act of saying, I'm committing myself to this family. I'm aligning myself with them. Uh, and I'm committed for the rest of my life to this, this cause, the cause of black freedom. Um, some people in the Shakur family were Shakurs by birth. Uh, Saladin's sons, uh, Lumumba and Zaid, they were uh, Saladin's sons, but they also changed their names later to Shakur. So they weren't born Shakur, but they later became Shakur. And m- many people in the family did take the name Shakur later, and that was a very intentional you know, process that you just did not take lightly. For a generation coming of age in the 90s, we first learned about Afeni Shakur through her son, Tupac. Um, Her song, Dear Mama, lays out his love and admiration for her, but also um, touches on the realities of having a mother who suffered from drug addiction. Let's listen to a little bit. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was bored and other little kids. And even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we blamed mama. I reminisce on the stress I caused. It was hell, hugging on my mama from a jail cell. Elementary, hey, I see the penitentiary one day. Running from the police, that's right. Mama catch me, put a whoop into my backside. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was the black queen, mama. I finally understand for a woman, it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed, a poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it, there's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. That was Tupac Shakur's song, Dear Mama, which came out in 1995. Santi, this was a beloved song, really an anthem in many ways, but it only encapsulated a small sliver of who Afeni was. Can you share a little bit about her origins and how she found her way to the Black Panther Party? Yeah, that song is uh, the way that a lot of us, you know, old Tupac fans, that's all that we knew of Afeni, um, was through that song. And so it was really a pleasure to, for me personally to learn about her story. Um, you know, she had a rough childhood, single mother, poverty. Um, she was running with street gangs and uh, dabbling in drugs and uh, just sort of trying to find her way. 
then she happened upon uh, Bobby Steele, who was a chairman of the, of the Black Panther Party, who was visiting Harlem at the time to sort of as sort of recruitment and support for Huey Newton. Uh, and she heard Bobby Seale speak, and she was just immediately captivated by just his presence. And so she uh, she decided to go to the, the local Harlem Black Panther chapter and sign up. And then she, soon after that, met Lamumba Shakur, who was Saladin's son. And she was just struck by him and his presence. And just she was just, these were people who were so dedicated and so passionate and so loving for the community. Some of the work she did, though... Um, with some of the work that we know about the Panthers. She recruited and trained new members. She helped launch the party's free breakfast for school children program. She helped tenants organize rent strikes against landlords. Um, This militancy also came with deep community work. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people just think about the Black Panthers as shotgun holding, you know, black beret wearing. But no, like a lot of what they did was just community work, sort of uncelebrated, just daily community work, buying groceries for people or helping helping uh, people carry their groceries upstairs if they're elderly, uh, feeding school children, uh, sickle cell anemia testing for the community. Um, just these sort of just urgent and immediate needs that the community needed. These are the sort of less celebrated things that the Black Panthers did. And Afeni and Lumumba and the other Shakurs and the other Black Panthers um, yeah, they did all these things that were just sort of almost bureaucratic, you know, just jobs that really weren't celebrated, but they were just every bit as part of serving the community as self-defense and, and everything else that we, you know, associate with the Black Panthers. Santi, you write that Afeni raised Tupac to be, I guess, the Black Prince of the, the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, Tupac was the chairman of the New African Panthers, which was a youth organization that wanted to carry on the work of the Black Panther Party. And you write that Tupac was very close to leaving music behind to follow this path. Before he even got his start in his career as a rapper, he and he was going through a lot of personal struggles with poverty and with his mother's addiction. And he was looking for any opportunity um, just to, to escape that. But he was raised, like you said, his, his, his mother, Afeni, literally said, you know, that he was going to become the black prince of the revolution. He was going to carry on the fight that they started. He was going to take the mantle and continue the work um, as, a, as a spokesperson, as a leader, as an activist. But he's also, you know, he's just a kid who just, he, lo- he loved rap. I mean, rap music was pretty new and he loved it and he, he was talented at it from the beginning. But his early raps, uh, starting in Baltimore and then after he moved to Marin City, his early raps were very much, he's talking about Black Panthers. He's talking about movement stuff that nobody else was really talking about. And rap was still pretty new, but nobody was going into, you know, really intricacies of, of Black liberation. And he knew all his history. And so that's what he was rapping about. But he wasn't having any, any real success. He was winning some little, like, local award shows and competitions. And, you know, he had his little rap crews. But he wasn't making any money off of it. And by the time he was in Marin City, he was crashing on couches, homeless a lot of the times, you know, having to scrounge for food, really struggling. And uh, he met up with some people, some movement elders who really encouraged him to go in this direction of, okay, well, let's come back to that. You can, you can still rap, but your focus has to be on, you know, we have to sort of get the youth back to having this interest in, in, these, in these topics and these issues. You know, we have to, like, bring the youth back in. And so these elders were going to coach Tupac and how to do that with with music and just with just being the chairman of the New African Panthers, which was a, a you know, a new group based in Atlanta. And Tupac was, he was at that crossroads. He was like, I'm going to go either, if I don't really make it with rap, if I don't make any money with rap, I'm going to move to Atlanta and, and really, this, and yeah. really focus on just being the, the chairman of the, the, the Panthers, selling newspapers, you know, recruiting young people to this organization. Um, almost at the zero hour, he received a call from Digital Underground's manager, Natron Gregory, who was D- Digital Underground, the, the sort of party rap group of the 90s. And they said, okay, you know, we want to hire you. You have some skills. You're really hungry. So uh, we'll take you on, but just as a dancer and a, and a roadie for now. We can come on tour with us. We'll give you some money. So Tupac really, and then all of a sudden he's, he's on stage and he's dancing and he's, you know, sort of a minor celebrity just with the group. But then he starts rapping and then starts getting even more attention. And, I mean, even his early raps, he still talks a lot about social issues and racial issues and economic issues. And But he's you see him sort of after the first album, you see him starting kind of drift away from it a little bit because he, now he's a celebrity. 
He's a, you know, and I was a movie star also, and so he's. And it was it also about success because he, he could be more successful talking about other things, not talking about black liberation. He, in a lot of ways, you know, he he thought that he needed to have the sort of more commercially viable songs, the sort of party anthems and everything, to draw people in, to draw listeners in, because if you know, like, if you are just a, a political rapper and that's all you do, you're, you're going to lose a lot of your audience. Um, at least the audience that he was trying to connect with. He wanted everybody. He wanted young black men from wherever they came from, you know, like cities and you know, just on both coasts, uh, people who were, in, you know, suffering from poverty. He just wanted he wanted to, to reach them where they were and then bring them in and then and then hit them with, you know, something a little deeper, a little more introspective, a little more historical. But you couldn't just do that. Had, so you had to do both at the same time. So you saw that sort of back and forth a little bit in his early records, but then it was it was so conflicting for him because he really did still want to stay true to, you know, he, he really did still think that he wanted to, he didn't want to disappoint his mother uh, in, in, in leading this charge and, and really carrying on the movement. But he also, he liked the attention, he liked the celebrity. Uh, and so he had to sort of, he, he struggled with both of those at the same time within him his, throughout his, the rest of his life. You know, Tupac's plan was to, to still be an activist, but through music. And as you said, we can listen to his music now and we hear those messages, especially as you get older, there's a deeper understanding. But for me, his music also speaks to the contradictions of Tupac and his mother, Afeni, and the movement itself, this violence and misogyny intertwined with these messages of love and determination and liberation and community. How do you reconcile that? Tupac was just, he was a young man who, Faced a lot of trauma growing up. I mean, he faced trauma of growing up with a family that was that had been um, really pursued by by governmental forces, and he grew up with the trauma of having a mother who was addicted to drugs. And he, that came out in his music. That, that sort of trauma and contradiction came out. He wasn't. He was not a perfect person. Obviously, I mean, he had many mistakes. He had many flaws, but he did not shy away from those those mistakes and those flaws and those contradictions. You know, he aired those out for everybody. And he was a young man who was living through all this in the public eye. And so every time he contradicted himself, yeah, we all contradict ourselves. We're all human. And in that, he's sort of following in the path work by his mother, who also was this great leader and a great person and a great thinker and very influential, but also had a long struggle with drugs because she was human. And I think that is... What makes them more influential and uh, better leaders is to address those shortcomings and address your mistakes and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just figuring this out. I mean, my heart's in the right place. I'm going to make mistakes, but you can learn from me and my mistakes what not to do, how to do it better. But the important thing is just to keep going. Um, you know, with a family that faces this kind of pressure and trauma, there's going to be a lot of difficulties and, and road bumps along the ways and contradictions, too. Santi Elijah Holly, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Santi Elijah Holly, author of the book An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. Coming up, we'll hear from Christian Cooper. He became known in 2020 for a scene he captured on video in Central Park while birdwatching. A white woman who refused his request to leash her dog called police falsely claiming a black man was threatening her and her dog. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com slash NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from Pushkin. In the original audiobook, The Art of Small Talk, actresses and comedians Casey Wilson and Jessica St. Clair share six simple rules for how to engage in small talk. 
Available on Audible, Spotify, or wherever you get your audiobooks. Terry has our next interview. I'll let her introduce it. Remember the news story from 2020 about a bird watcher in Central Park who told a woman she needed to leash her dog because she was in a part of the park designed to attract wildlife and an unleashed dog was a threat to the wildlife. She refused. He started videotaping the incident on his phone. The woman, who was white, called the police, falsely claiming that an African-American man was threatening her and her dog. The man, Christian Cooper, has written a new memoir and is my guest. One chapter is devoted to the Central Park incident. The rest of the book is about growing up as an outsider and how he turned that to his advantage. Growing up in the 70s, he was a young black bird watcher in a world of white bird watchers, a closeted gay boy, and a Marvel comic book nerd before that was considered cool. While at Harvard, he came out and then became a gay activist. He was one of the first openly gay writers and editors at Marvel and created what he thinks was Marvel's first lesbian character and was in on the creation of Marvel's first openly gay male character. Now Cooper hosts a new show for the National Geographic channel called Extraordinary Birder, and he serves on the board of New York City Audubon. His new memoir is called Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. As you can guess from the title, the book is also filled with his stories about birdwatching. Christian Cooper, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. The first chapter of your new book is titled An Incident in Central Park, and I thought, yes, I know about that incident. And you write, I am a, you're describing what's happening at the moment. You said, I am, I am a black man running through New York Central Park. And you describe how your heart is pounding. And you say, I know what this looks like. And I'm thinking, I don't remember the part about you running in the Central Park incident. But then you explain you're really running because you got an alert on your phone about a rare bird sighting in the park, and you don't want to miss it. So when you say, I know what this looks like, what did you think it looked like as you were running through Central Park to get a sight of this rare bird? A sloppy-looking black man racing through the park. <laughs> because, honestly, at that point in the migration, I am a visual mess. My <laughs> hair is likely uncut. I am almost certainly unshaven for several days. Uh, my clothes are from the bottom of the closet, something that I would never otherwise wear, except that I haven't done laundry in three weeks. So I'm a mess, and it looks awful, and my shoes are like, I deliberately wear the worst shoes I can get away with because I'm stomping around the park for hours, and if they get wet or muddy or whatever, I don't want to ruin good shoes. So I look awful. All right, so let's talk about the Central Park incident that you were involved in. It was Memorial Day 2020. The park was quiet because it's like the COVID era Few people were birding during that period, apparently. And, you know, New York was a real COVID hotspot. There wasn't a vaccine. There wasn't treatment. And so I think you were masking outside as well as inside at the time. So you were in the part of Central Park known as the Ramble. What makes this part of the park special and different? The Ramble is designed to make you think feel like you are in the Catskills, in a wooded area um, that you would normally find maybe about two hours north of the city. But here you are smack in the middle of Manhattan, and because of the dense forest, because of the um, extensive undergrowth, because the paths were deliberately laid out to be windy and twisty so that you don't have necessarily direct sight lines everywhere, um, which is why it's called the Ramble. So that's what makes the Ramble special. And because it has these plantings and lots of waterways go through it, it is particularly attractive to birds because they can find cover, they can find food, um, they can bathe in the streams and uh, drink from from the streams. So it's really a, a, a haven for wildlife. There And there are also raccoons that live in there. Um, lately, there's been a coyote hanging out in there. It is designed to replicate a wild space. And it's got all kinds of wild creatures living in there. So uh, we birders adore it. But dogs have to be leashed there because of all the wildlife, because the dogs can attack the wildlife? 
the wildlife, the plantings, it's a sensitive area. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a dog run, but nothing grows there. And that's because, you know, the the constant foot traffic from dogs tears up the turf. Um, you know, and uh, you can't blame dogs for that. Dogs are just being dogs. But in a city like New York, where there are so many people concentrated in one area and there are their pets concentrated in one area, it means that there's a concentration of dogs going through that if they were off the leash, the habitat wouldn't stand a chance. And then on top of that, the wildlife wouldn't stand a chance. Okay, so on that famous Memorial Day of 2020, I should say infamous, um, first you saw a dog unleashed, then you saw the woman who turned out to be Amy Cooper, no relation to you. Um, So you told Amy Cooper the woman, I should say the white woman, whose dog was unleashed, and you told her the dog needs to be leashed, and you pointed to a sign saying that the dog needs to be uh, leashed. Just to refresh everybody's memory, describe the dialogue that you had with her. Sure. Um, uh, Basically, I, you know, heard it first. Uh That was the first thing. Yeah, the, the sound came first. Knew there was an unleashed dog in the ramble, Saw it tearing through the very area I was hoping to find a particular bird. Um, And then saw the owner walking along a path that intersected the path I was approaching on. So, And I knew there was a sign right where the two paths intersected. So I just waited where I was, um, which was about 20 feet away from the intersection, and waited for her until she was right by the sign. Because it always helps to have the sign right there. And I said, you know, excuse me, ma'am, but dogs in the ramble have to be on the leash at all times. You know, in a voice that was loud enough to carry the distance between us. And um, she said, you know, oh, well, the dog runs are all closed and he needs his exercise. And I said, I get that. But all you have to do is take your dog about 100 feet that way. And I gestured down the path in another direction And I'm like, and you're outside the ramble, and you can let your dog run off the leash to your heart's content until 9 a.m. And she was like, that's too dangerous, which makes absolutely no sense if you know anything about the ramble. So the bottom line was that she was just not having it, and she, you know, was going to do what she wanted to do, and that was that. So at that point, I was like, well, look, if you're going to do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do, but you're not going to like it. And she looked at me and said, well, what's that? And so I called her dog. And she said very confidently, he won't come to you. Well, I've been birding the park for 35 years. So I uh, have been dealing with this problem for a long time. And so I carry dog treats because it's a great way to coax dogs out of sensitive areas. So I started to pull out the dog treats. That's all she had to see. And she zoomed from unconcerned to frantic in 0.5 seconds. And uh, that's where things started to spiral downward. Um, She uh, got nervous, um, grabbed her dog by the collar and started hoisting it around by the collar, which made no sense. The logical response, if you don't want your dog to eat treats, is to put it on the leash. But I don't think she was thinking logically at that point. Then she started threatening to call the police. And you kept saying, yeah, please go ahead. Why why did you say, please go ahead? Actually, there's an interesting uh, uh, moment before that, which is that because she had picked up the dog by the collar and was hauling it around by the collar, which was hurting the dog, which was not the idea here, instead of putting it on the leash, I was like, all right, well, that's not working. So I put away the dog treats, which I hadn't even tossed at that point, and I grabbed my cell phone. And I'm like, all right, instead, I'm going to photograph her scofflaw behavior with my cell phone until that dog's on the leash. And I started recording. And that's... What set her off? She did not want to be recorded. It infuriated her for some reason. Um, And so, I mean, you know, I I imagine nobody wants to be recorded against their will, but I don't know if it was necessarily, again, a rational response. And that's the point at which she said, uh, if you don't stop recording me, I'm going to call the police and tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. So before we get to the African-American part of that, Why did you start videotaping her? What were you going to do with the videotape? A lot of us birders, because the problem was so out of control, particularly that year, it was the worst I had ever seen it. Um, We started recording uh, with our iPhones because we figured, look, 
we've got to present this evidence to the Central Park Conservancy, to uh, the Parks Department, to try to get some enforcement, to show them how bad the problem has become. So um, that's what some of us had started doing, um, and it also creates a big incentive for the scofflaw dog owner to actually obey the rules because most of them don't like to be video recorded while they're breaking the park regulations. And then she actually called the police and said, there is an African-American man threatening me and my dog. So once she started using the word African-American man, how did that change the situation in your mind? Well, it injected race into the situation for the first time. Up until then, it had been the second oldest story in the ramble, which is dog owner versus bird watcher. But now suddenly it had a racial dimension um, because it took us to a place where a white woman is saying and a black man is is putting my life in danger. And that has led to so many dark places in our nation's history. You know, most famously Emmett Till, um, the, the lynchings in the South. Um, so many instances of a white woman making a damsel in distress call and the full weight of the authorities coming down on sometimes entire black communities as a result. So um, that gave me serious pause because I'm not an idiot. I I spent my whole life... Uh, living as a black man in the United States. And I know what it can mean if a white woman accuses you of something like that. So her attempt at intimidation almost worked. Uh, uh, part of me was like, oh, shoot, if I, if I stop recording, maybe this will all go away. And that was the intent on her part. And that's when, I don't know, something inside me said, oh, hell no. Um, I am not going to be complicit in my own dehumanization. So she did call the police, and she also leashed her dog. And then what happened? Well, that's it, is is that, you know, calling the the police was immaterial to me. You know, she had to do what she was going to do, and there was, you know, I was not going to cooperate with her by stopping recording or whatever. I was going to stick to what my plan was, which was to record until the dog was on the leash. And the second she put that dog on the leash, I said, thank you, and stopped recording because I was done with her. She did not get to further disrupt my morning, and I went back to birding. Christian Cooper speaking with Terry Gross. His new memoir is called Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. And Ken Tucker will review Janelle Monae's new album. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Manhattan DA wanted to press charges, which he did. It was Cyrus Vance Jr., who's also investigated um, uh, Donald Trump. But um, anyhow, so he wanted to press charges. You declined to participate in that. Uh, Why? He was going to press, he pressed charges for, you know, like a false, falsely accusing you. Right. That was a very hard call for me um, because I got the principle involved and how important it was. 
But on the other hand, you know, her life was in ruins. It was a shambles. Um, if that has not served as a comment on what she did, if that has, does not serve as a deterrent to other people who might try and do the same thing, I don't know what will. Yeah, she lost her um, job. Her dog was taken away from her. Right. She was sort of like this national pariah. Mm-hmm. Her past indiscretions were splashed on all the front pages. It was just, you know, and then there were people who were, you know, sending death threats to her, which is like makes absolutely no sense if you think that what she did put my life in danger to then make death threats against her. That makes no sense at all. So, you know, there was a lot going on. And I just thought, you know what? It's not uh, it's not proportional to what happened to me because a lot of people, you know, think, oh, what happened to you was terrible. And, and you know, it was bad. But you know, I I ultimately was not thrown to the ground by the cops. I never even had to deal with the cops. I was never arrested. I, I was not shot dead on the spot. None of that happened. Um, what upsets people is that it might have happened, and I get that. But none of that happened. And as a result, you know, I, I, my sense of, of justice, of proportionality, <laughs> kind of made me very hesitant to participate. Plus, on top of that, it was an election cycle. This was a very high-profile case. And I just had the feeling that it was too much a political motivation and not enough of a justice motivation. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a lot of things involved. It was a very hard call. It was really right on the line for me. And ultimately, I was just like, I have to err on the side of mercy, forgiveness, whatever you want to call it. But that's that's what I did. So let's talk about your youth. What was it like for you being black, a birder, a closeted gay boy, and a comic book nerd? And this was, you were deep into Marvel Comics, and this was way before Marvel was famous for its Marvel Universe movie franchise. So Marvel was actually kind of having financial problems at the time, right? It wasn't that cool to be so deep into Marvel Comics. I don't know if Marvel was having financial problems at that time, but they had not discovered the formula to fame and fortune that they have discovered now. Um, So if you're asking me what that was like, having that pile up of nerdy things all at once. How how much on the outside did you feel? uh, I was doomed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know. That's concise. But you know what? uh, what, what, uh, what What I like to remember is that I embraced it. it. It was who I was, and I was like, you know what? I, I've got to go with this because it's, it's what I love. It's what I enjoy. And that would be my advice to every person, every young person out there, is embrace whatever weirdness is yours and go with it because you will find a way to a wonderful life if you do in the future. One thing that happened when, when you were going through puberty is that you realized you were finding some of the superheroes very arousing. Um, and let's face it, I mean, they're, they're usually muscular, they're sometimes dressed in tights, they're <laughs> very revealing costumes. Well, and quite honestly, for me, it didn't, it didn't even wait until puberty for, for right, that realization. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did that say to you, and what was your reaction to realizing that you found the male superheroes you know, sexually attractive? That I needed to keep it under lock and key. Uh, because it was the 70s and it was Long Island and being gay was not a thing, at at least not a thing if you wanted to live. Um, So, you know, there was no Ellen, there was no Anderson Cooper, none of that had happened yet. Um, Stonewall had barely happened at that point. So I just had to keep it all locked up inside, and that was very difficult, very, very difficult. You, you read in your book that you felt as if you were locked inside a coffin under six feet of earth. Um, yeah. What did you do to try to cover up your actual feelings and appear as straight as possible? It was more a matter of I couldn't let anything slip. And don't laugh at me, but... Again, I'm a nerd. And for me, my idol 
probably largely because of that reason, the, the, the fact that I had to keep my gayness under lock and key, was Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Because he was intellectual, he was smart, and he had that troublesome human half, because he was half human, half Vulcan. And Vulcans are supposed to be completely rational and keep their emotions under complete lock and key. And God, if there was one thing I had to do was keep my emotions under lock and key, because if my emotions got out, I might betray myself, might betray the fact that I'm actually interested in this person romantically or that I'm gay in some other way. And so I had to have strict emotional control. So that that was sort of the approach I took to things back then was, you know, uh, outwardly, you know, affable, genial, inside feeling like I was buried alive, but keeping that that dichotomy under careful control. Um, You Loved Marvel Comics. You were a Marvel comic nerd growing up. And then you actually got to work at Marvel. Um, What did Marvel mean in the culture at the time? Like when did you first start working for Marvel and you moved up in the ranks over the years? Yeah, I started working at Marvel in 1990. So I had just gone through reading Marvel uh, comics for my whole life, but particularly intensely during my college years, believe it or not, that's when probably when my Marvel, Marvel reading peaked before I actually started working there. Um, and there had been some amazing storytelling in that era, um, principally in a comic book called X-Men, which really resonates, I think, for a lot of gay people because the X-Men are mutants. They look like everybody else, but they're born a little bit different, and that difference doesn't manifest until adolescence. And then, you know, it's sort of like, oh, what do I do with this new me that I have? And boy, does that resonate with gay people. So I was a big X-Men fan. So one of the comics that you worked on was called Alpha Flight, and you participated in the episode in which a Marvel superhero came out for the first time. Would you describe the character? Sure. Um, We say issue in comics, not episode, but that's okay. Right, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, the character is a speedster, so sort of like the Flash, who is probably a much more familiar character if you know anything about comics. In fact, there's a movie about the Flash that's about to come out. So the character is called North Star. He is a, he is a mutant. So he was born with these powers that manifested at adolescence, and he can run super fast. Um, and I remember when I was reading Alpha Flight, Back in my college days, and I read one or two issues because it was a brand new comic, and I was like, hmm, North Star is gay. Because the seeds had been planted even way back then. So fast forward many years, and now I'm working at Marvel, and I happen to be working on Alpha Flight, and we hire a new writer. And uh, and I say we. I was the assistant editor, which means head Xeroxer. Um, <laughs> but my boss had hired a, a, a new writer. And he, in his proposal for the com- where he wanted to take the comic book, he was like, yeah, and I think we should bring Northstar out of the closet. And, you know, my boss, Bobby Chase, has a gay brother. And, you know, she's a modern woman. She's like, yeah, that makes sense. And me being gay myself, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And so we did it. My final question to you is um, you're now hosting the National Geographic TV series Extraordinary Birder. Does that mean that you get to go to places with a camera crew, with a whole team, that you wouldn't feel safe going to birding as a black man alone? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the most important episode to me is when we go to Alabama and I was like, go to Alabama to go birding? Not going to happen. Now, I had gone a year before at the invitation of Alabama Audubon, and that experience was so important and moving that I insisted that one of the episodes we need to we needed to replicate that experience. So, you know, going to Alabama in the arms of Alabama Audubon or in the arms of the film crew, you know, it's it makes it possible for me to go places where I would not otherwise go. And the reason why Alabama is so important is because we're in Selma. We're walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, My family, it turns out, we're all Northern people, Northerners for a couple of generations, but like all African-Americans, 
we have our roots in the South. Eventually, my dad's family came from Alabama. So all of this history and birds and civil rights history is colliding. And I hope we did that episode justice because uh, I think that's going to be the most uh, interesting and moving episode of the series. Well, congratulations on the series. I think it's great that you have it. And congratulations on your memoir. Um, it's just been like really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Terry. Christian Cooper spoke with Terry Gross. His new memoir is called Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. Since 2007, Janelle Monae has released albums that mix R&B, pop, and rap. In recent years, Monae has established herself as an actor in films like Moonlight, Hidden Figures, and the hugely popular Netflix film Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Monet is now back with her first new album since 2018, and rock critic Ken Tucker says its title, The Age of Pleasure, is a crucial key to the themes and sound of this new collection. I look into your eyes and I get that rush. Maybe cause tonight you're gonna be my crush. I look around and I get that rush. Maybe cause tonight you're gonna be my from the moment Janelle Monet began her new album by rapping, I'm feeling much lighter, I float, I was drawn in by this completely disarming collection called The Age of Pleasure. No matter what mood you're in, it dissolves any resistance you may have about giving in to its joy, its seductiveness, its glowing positivity. Monet's previous album, The Grandly Ambitious Dirty Computer, came out in 2018, the same year as the first Black Panther movie, and filled with a similar kind of Afrofuturism. Monet's version crossed the science fiction of Octavia Butler with the pop eclecticism of Stevie Wonder. In contrast to this, The Age of Pleasure is intentionally smaller-scaled, more intimate, in some ways more low-key and lo-fi. Listen to the use of an acoustic piano on this song called Only Have Eyes for Two. It's as though Thelonious Monk walked in to plink out a couple of chords to provide the song with its hook. I like to love with my eyes closed I try not to lead with my ego Everything happened in slow-mo But we all smiled and said it's alright Cause you're the one, you're the one Double the fun, triple the time for love You're the one, you're the one You suck the words from my tongue That's when I knew I Undulating rhythm of that song is typical of the range of sounds and styles Monet uses with such serene confidence. She taps into genres native to Africa and the Caribbean, as well as American R&B. Listen to the way she deploys a punchy Afrobeat horn section to jumpstart the song, No Better. The title The Age of Pleasure suggests the songs here describe the life of a Sybarite engaged in the pursuit of sensual happiness. That sounds simple, but it's not. 
Monet knows that as a non-binary person of color, the seeking of pleasure is always complicated or even impeded by cultural and political history. Thus, this album serves as a kind of affirmative aggression, an insistence that the artist is going to live and make her art exactly as she pleases. You can come along, but don't get in her way. I like lipstick on my neck. Let me know I'm your number one select. I like lipstick on my neck. Hands around my waist so you know what's coming next. I wanna feel your lips on mine. I just wanna feel. At one point, Janelle Monet name checks David Bowie. And I suspect she may be thinking of his Let's Dance period, that moment in the 1980s when he teamed up with producer Niall Rogers to say, in effect, the world is going crazy, so let's dance. Monet is refashioning that sentiment to fit our current moment. She's made a party record that takes pleasure seriously. I just want to feel a little tongue we don't have a long time. Ken Tucker reviewed Janelle Monet's new album, The Age of Pleasure. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support this week from Adam Staniszewski and Charlie Kyer. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Don't get caught without emergency medical coverage on an international trip. Learn how Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your trip from the unexpected at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.